Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. It turns out there's a Ukrainian version of the Appalachian hammer dulcimer. So then I go to Ukraine and I get it off the, the luggage rack and, and one of the handlers hands it to me and says, Simbali. And I said, yes, yes. And I'm wheeling it down the airport and people are saying, Simbali, Simbali. And we make a roadside stop to visit a theme park throwback. Dinosaur Kingdom 2. And earlier this month, Kentucky poet Ada Limon found out she'd been named the new U.S. Poet Laureate. I think my first reaction was one of speechlessness, which I know for a poet is not something that you want. We're supposed to, you know, have a way with words, and at that moment, all words left me. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. A lot of folks in the region are probably familiar with the traditional instrument called the mountain or lap dulcimer. Folk musician Gene Ritchie popularized it in the 1950s. But there's another, lesser-known dulcimer in Appalachia called the hammer dulcimer. It's a bigger, stationary instrument that isn't related to the lap dulcimer at all. In fact, it's a relative of a Ukrainian instrument called the Simbali. When Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett learned about this unexpected relationship, she was intrigued. Clara brings us this story from Fairmount, West Virginia, and Lviv, Ukraine. I'm in a farmhouse in Marion County, West Virginia, in a living room where a woman sits behind a wooden board that's laced with exposed strings. The afternoon sunlight illuminates her hands as they move across the dulcimer, gently drumming the strings with wooden hammers that resemble little skis. And some 5,000 miles away, from a townhouse on the outskirts of Lviv, Ukraine, there's a similar sound coming from a similar instrument, an echo of Ukraine's Carpathian Mountains resounding into the mid-afternoon air. It's the sound of a cymbali. With just a quick glance at these two instruments, there's no doubt they're related. But how? With thousands of miles of ocean and landmass in between, where's the link? To begin my investigation, I talked with Lynette Swiger from Fairmont, West Virginia. Lynette is a retired school teacher and adjunct professor at Fairmont State University's Folklife Center. She was introduced to the hammer dulcimer when she was a teenager. My mother was the local 4-H leader, and there was a man from Mannington called Russell Fluharty. Also known as the Dulcimer Man. North Central West Virginia had a fairly strong hammer dulcimer tradition, but it was dying out. When Russell took up the hammer dulcimer, he revived that hammer dulcimer tradition and really single-handedly kept it from dying. When Russell played for Lynette's 4-H group, it was the first time Lynette had ever heard the hammer dulcimer. And when he left, I wanted to play that instrument. So she went on the hunt to buy a hammer dulcimer of her own. Uh, they cost $125, which at the time, for me as a, a young kid, was a lot of money. I got down to pennies to, to make $125. She had her eye on a dulcimer made by a local woodworker. And I remember I poured it all into a brown paper lunch bag and tied it at the top with a piece of string and took it to Ralph Campbell's house and put it, plunked it, plunk down on his coffee table. He didn't even count it. He just said, great, thank you. And that was the start of a lifelong pursuit, learning the hammer dulcimer and celebrating Appalachian folk music. The shelves on our home are crowded with cassette tapes, organized into an archive of sorts. This box are ballad singers. Okay. It, it's a sickness. <laughs> it's bad. Lynette plays hammer dulcimer in the traditional West Virginia style. And although the approach is unique to the region, I learned that many versions of the instrument are played across the world. Lynette told me our hammer dulcimer is a descendant of the hochbrett, an old German instrument. A hochbrett means chopping block. So you would chop 
with your little hammers. As people migrated, the hawkbret did too. It made its way west through Great Britain, Ireland, and eventually to Appalachia, where it became known as the hammer dulcimer. It also migrated to the east, taking root along the way, including in the mountains of Ukraine. There it was known as the Symboli. So ours had remained a more simple instrument and theirs had become a more elaborate instrument. And when European immigrants came to work in the Appalachian coal fields, they each brought their own version of the hawkbret. The two instruments existed side by side right here in Marion County, West Virginia, and really never met, really never crossed over for a variety of reasons. As a folk musician and teacher of folklore, Lynette wanted to figure out why. They're, they're different, and they're played differently, and this, the number of strings are different, but they still look very similar, and they're both played with hammers. She found that the isolation of the mountains and the ethnic separation in coal camps also impeded cross-pollination between the two. In 2013, Lynette presented her research about the differences and similarities between the Symboli and Hammer dulcimer at a conference in western Ukraine. So, of course, she packed her dulcimer. Okay, so I'm going down the Pittsburgh airport wheeling this, this trapezoidal wooden box that's half as big as me, and people are giving me the oddest looks. And then I'm telling the airport workers, please be careful with it, you know, and I have fragile written all over it, and they're saying, what is it? So then I go to Ukraine, and I get it off the, the luggage rack, and, and one of the handlers hands it to me and says, Simbali! And I said, yes, yes, and I'm wheeling it down the airport, and people are saying, Simbali, Simbali! You play Simbali! And I said, yes! I mean, everywhere I went, they knew exactly what it was. Lynette says she felt right at home in the mountains of Ukraine. When we walked into the mountains, and the people were just common mountain people, just like they are here. Hello, as you walk past, and how are you? And their laundry was hanging on the lines. I mean, it was just like being at home. At the opening session of the conference, Lynette and her hammer dulcimer had center stage. And it was very hushed and quiet. I, I sat down with that instrument, and they really wanted to hear Appalachian music played on their national instrument. Her performance was so well received, it even played on national television. Lynette is one of the hammer dulcimer players sustaining the tradition in Appalachia. But the presence of Simbali in the region has largely faded away. And since I couldn't find a symbolist here in Appalachia, I decided to look to the source. And after some intense internet sleuthing, I found my guy. Yeah. Do, do you have your Symboli with you? Uh, yes, it's, it's here. You see it? That's Sevlad Sadovich. I am a musician, uh, the multi-instrumentalist um, from Lviv, Ukraine. I was uh, educated as the percussionist as a classical musician. I met Sevalod over Zoom, in typical millennial fashion. He wore a hoodie and hipster glasses. A drum set filled the screen behind him. Speakers lined the shelves, and I spotted a keyboard peeking into the frame. The home of a musician. And there it was. The large wooden instrument. The Ukrainian cousin of Lynette's hammer dulcimer. It's decorated uh, in the mountain style with a lot of uh, color uh, glass. It's a lot of uh, wooden uh, elements with um, steel strings. Sevalod lives near the Carpathian Mountains of Western Ukraine, a terrain which has greatly influenced the traditional music of the region. The scale and the tempo is precisely matched to the landscape. And you are always going down and going up and going down and going up. It's 90% instrumental music. Uh, really fast and uh, highly decorated melodies. Um, fast tempos and rich in uh, ornaments. 
He says nowadays, not many people play cymbali. It's heavy and hard to tune. There is a joke. It says that um, the cymbalist, cymbalist is the man who playing the cymbali, uh, half of his life, he's, play, he's tuning his cymbali. And the other part of his life, he's playing on uh, untuned cymbali. Savalad is teaching himself, drawing inspiration from traditional music and blending it with his classical training and contemporary interests. Uh, I think one life is not enough for, for going through all traditions of cymbali just in our mountains. Savalad is a full-time musician and music teacher. He plays in a band called Lemko Bluegrass Band. They play in a style that's a mix of Ukrainian music and bluegrass music. There's a growing trend of young people like Sevalad who are interested in preserving traditional music and Ukrainian culture, an act which he feels is significant, especially amidst the current circumstances. In the past several months, he and his fellow musicians in Lviv have been playing gigs to raise money in support of Ukrainian troops. The city where Sevalot lives has been mostly spared from the violence in eastern parts of the country. The traditional arts, the folk music, the dances, uh, decoration, it all matters. Uh, we have uh, treasures we see around us, we want to collect them. I want to listen to it, I want to share it with my friends, you know. Sevalad sent me a video of him playing Simbali, accompanying a group of three female singers. They're dressed in traditional clothing, floor-length skirts and brightly colored flowers pinned to their hair. Sevalad's passion for the Symboli and folk music of Ukraine felt so similar to Lynette's commitment to the Hammer Dulcimer and folk music of Appalachia. And I found it puzzling that both instruments originated from a common source, centuries later nearly collided right here in West Virginia, but then promptly went their separate ways, like magnets of the same pole that repel each other when they get too close. So I decided to interfere. I'll just get, shoot him a text and say we're on. Oh, there, there he is. Mm -hmm. Hello. Hello. Lynette was in her farmhouse in Fairmont. So I am in the country. Clara has been here. So I live in the mountains on a farm. If you go to your mountains, the Carpathian Mountains, if you go there mm -hmm. and look around, that's what it looks like here. Sevalad was in his home on the outskirts of Lviv. Well, uh, I'm now in my place, in my home. It is a small house, tiny house. I'm talking to someone in Ukraine, and we see each other. It's amazing. From there, the conversation took off, talking about tuning and melodies and musical terms that went right over my head. Uh, for example, I have I here, I, and I made octave. Oh, nice. Sevalad was playing with his cell phone in one hand and Symbali hammer in the other. There's a jump on a third. A, C sharp. We had just a 40 minute limit on Zoom, so I had to play timekeeper. So we have, we have six minutes left. No way! Really? The next 40 minute call also maxed out. And as we talked, they exchanged knowing smiles, united as insiders, with this instrument that has transcended time and place. Beauties on the melody. Right. Uh, yes, do you understand me? Absolutely. That's what we do here. Exactly. From what I learned, the Symbali and the Hammer Dulcimer are both very place-specific, and the music that's played is hyper-local. In Ukraine, we have a really deep roots... This traditional Appalachian music, it's our roots. 
and we still have evidence in the village the grannies are singing like uh, 9th or 10th century style uh, it's it's really treasure the titles of many of those songs um, indicate places or people or important events so when we play those tunes we're playing our history we may not know it but we are playing our history and we are playing who we are as people. And that, I found, is what links the hammer dulcimer and the cymbali. In western Ukraine and in Appalachia, these instruments are vessels holding a history and culture that is so specific, yet altogether universal. Well, uh, maybe we will match once more and you will show me your dulcimer. How I will do that. I will have my dulcimer ready to show the next time. Uh, I love this. Thank you, thank, you. thank you both so much. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. That story comes to us from our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos of the hammer dulcimer and the cymbali, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Earlier this month, Kentucky writer Ada Limon was named U.S. Poet Laureate by the Librarian of Congress. Limon lives in Lexington, Kentucky, where she writes, teaches remotely, gives poetry readings, and also hosts the poetry podcast, The Slowdown. Kentucky Public Radio's Derek Oberly spoke to Limon about poetry and her connection to the Bluegrass State. So first off, what was your reaction when you found out that you'd been named U.S. Poet Laureate? What did that feel like for you? Well, you know, to be honest, I think my first reaction was one of speechlessness, which I know for a poet is not something that you want. We're supposed to, you know, have a way with words. And at that moment, all words left me. Um, and I think I was feeling just incredibly overwhelmed with gratitude and also a little fear, if I don't mind, you know, if I can be honest. After it sort of dissipated, I was just feeling that really sense of enormous gratitude, um, not only for this position, but to all the people who have made it possible, all the poets laureate that have come before me. And um, I really feel like I'm, I'm part of a community and that this is for everyone. You know, not just for me. What do you see poetry's role in society in 2022 being? You know, I think one of the things that I love most about poetry is I really do believe it can help us reconnect to our humanity. And what I mean by that is that I think poetry really has the ability to remind us of emotion and the full spectrum of human emotion. Grief, love, longing, loss, happiness, joy, a moment of peace. And it can share those feelings. It can, it can expose them within us as we read it. You know, if you feel like you've, you've ever heard a song and suddenly felt so moved that you get up and dance or have, had it kind of hurt you because it reminds you of someone that you've lost and feel stung by it. You know, good poems can do that same thing. And you can feel yourself moved and transformed in such a short, you know, period of time. I mean, a poem can be just a few stanzas, can be just a few lines, and you can feel yourself breathing, and uh, you can feel yourself re reminded that you are, you know, a, a human being with, with all of these emotions living through you, and I think that's really important right now, because I think so many of us are compartmentalizing our feelings, um, and we're moving from just sort of one chaotic event to the next chaotic event. We're all trying to make a living. We're all trying to flourish if we can, um, if not just survive. And I think it's really important to remember that in a very brief moment, you can also be reminded that you are a complex, living, breathing animal moving through this time and space. You're from Sonoma, California, but you've lived in Lexington now for o over 10 years, I believe. How has living in Kentucky influenced your writing? I often think that one of the things people don't recognize about Kentucky if they haven't been here is just how gorgeous it is. There's a lot of just physical beauty in the landscape. 
Um, I moved here because of my husband's work in the thoroughbred industry. Um, but I really have grown to love Kentucky in so many ways, and I think the natural landscape is a big part of that. But also it has a wonderful literary community and a literary legacy. And I think it's so important to remember that writing doesn't just happen on, you know, the two coasts as we think of New York and San Francisco and L.A. And Kentucky, for me, has become such a beautiful home. It's allowed me to have a little more space and time to write. Um, But it's also really allowed me a, a very generous writing community that I get to surround myself with and be inspired by all the time. That was Kentucky Public Radio's Derek Oberly speaking with Kentucky writer Ada Limon, Poet Laureate of the United States. Later in the show, we stop at a roadside attraction near Natural Bridge, Virginia. All right, head, head up. All right, all right, behave yourself, behave yourself. That story and more after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Most every summer, Americans hit the road for vacation. Around Appalachia... Families pile into cars and drive from the hills and mountains to, well, other hills and mountains, like the Smokies. Or to the ocean for a break in places like Myrtle Beach or the Outer Banks. This tradition dates back for about as long as there have been automobiles. And on these long drives, people needed breaks. So they'd stop at fruit stands or fireworks stores or unique roadside attractions. A lot of those old-style roadside attractions have disappeared but some have managed to hang on. In 2020, I visited artist Mark Klein's Dinosaur Kingdom 2 in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Where are you folks from? We are from Chatham, Virginia. Chatham, Virginia. Oh, Chatham, yeah. Virginia. Dinosaurs love people from Chatham, Virginia. <laughs> yeah, they have that special southern taste. To it. I bet. It's Friday afternoon, an hour and a half before closing, and Mark Klein greets a family fresh out of their car. I'm the creator of the park, so... Well, maybe I shouldn't have told you that. I should have waited till you, to see if you liked it or not. Yeah. <laughs> All right, have fun. Thank you. Seriously, try not to get eaten. <laughs> Mark's dressed in jeans, a white T-shirt, and white fedora. I've met him in the parking lot of Dinosaur Kingdom 2, a roadside attraction across the street from the Natural Bridge Zoo on U.S. Route 11. If you notice, when you come into the parking lot, uh, I've designed this so that your adventure begins here. And what you're seeing is the train depot and the, the uh, Yankee up there fighting the dinosaur on the train car. Dinosaur Kingdom evolved out of one of Mark's previous attractions, the Haunted Monster Museum. He populated a one-acre space with dinosaurs fighting Civil War soldiers to entertain folks waiting in line for the Monster Museum. Of course, we had a major fire in 2012. The Haunted Monster Museum burned down, but we had all these dinosaurs that survived out in the woods. Mark eventually got a 16-acre piece of land across from the Natural Bridge Zoo, where he built Dinosaur Kingdom 2. He says his interest in the Civil War dates back to a series of events, starting in 1969 with Hurricane Camille, which caused severe flooding in the Virginia mountains where Mark's family lived. My mom gathered me and my brothers up and headed up, headed up to Gettysburg, you know, to get us away from the danger. We went up there, and my mom took us to all the, the museums, all the Gettysburg museums. I saw the, the wax museums and the little miniature museums, and I was just totally fascinated with that. Mark figured everyone loves dinosaurs, and he's located just south of Lexington, Virginia. Uh, we're just down the road from where Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson lived, so we figured that uh, 60% of the, the battles of, of the Civil War took place here in Virginia, so we sort of married up the two uh, fact with fantasy, and it seems to be pretty popular. Dinosaur Kingdom 2 acts as a funhouse mirror for that history, squeezing it into an absurdist revisioning, 
where Union and Confederate soldiers interact with dinosaurs in bizarre scenes. In one, President Abraham Lincoln sits atop a building as a flying dinosaur makes off with his speech. And you can see that the bird is actually chewing up the Gettysburg Address. Now you know why the Gettysburg Address was so short, because the Pteranodon ate most of it. Elsewhere, a steampunk Stonewall Jackson with a trench coat and telescoping arm battles a Spinosaurus. The part culminates with a big T-Rex that swoops down on an outhouse at the very end. All right, head, head up. All right, all right, behave yourself, behave yourself. Yeah. And the breath in that thing. Here's the thing, by design, you want to have people as they exit. They saw this T-Rex coming at them in the Johnny house, so about the time they're laughing, talking about it, and they're coming through right here, through this gate. As they exit, the people that are standing on that porch getting ready to buy their tickets are seeing people laughing and enjoying themselves. Now, if those people on the porch are sort of on the fence or deciding whether or not to buy those tickets, they see these people coming out and they just had a great time. And sometimes that pushes it over. Klein occasionally hears from customers and critics upset about his use of Civil War imagery at Dinosaur Kingdom 2. His response is as irreverent as the park itself. If anybody can make an issue out of cartoon soldiers fighting dinosaurs with slime monsters everywhere, I said, bring it on. I want to hear this. This, is, this park is ridiculous. It's meant to be ridiculous, but isn't, isn't that what war is? War is ridiculous. Dinosaur Kingdom 2 is a throwback to the old roadside attractions of the mid-20th century when Americans explored the country in their automobiles. Businesses tried to entice them off the road and to spend a few dollars. This is an old-time tourist attraction um, that have sort of become extinct in the 70s. Now there's a whole new generation of kids discovering this because this is a brand new experience for them. This is something that just doesn't exist anymore, but yet here it is. Mark Klein's something of a throwback himself. People call him the Barnum of the Blue Ridge, and he's definitely got the gift of gab. Mark grew up in Waynesboro, Virginia, near the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains, loving comics, cartoons, and monster movies. He pursued those interests through art and made a major leap when he learned about fiberglass sculpting through a job at Red Mill Manufacturing, which made him figurines of animals and people. The guy showed me how to work with resin, and uh, here I've been working with paper mache before, and I thought, well, I can make things more exterior with this. And he said, you sure can, Mark. Here's a five-gallon bucket. Go home and play with it. And he did. Mark started creating stuff. To build an original piece, I'll scale it out. Then I'll use foam, cover the, you know, cut out a piece out of foam to the size I want. And then I'll essentially coat that with fiberglass. And if I like that design, I'll make a mold of it so I can make duplicates. After I make the original piece, I can just duplicate it over and over and over and over. Mark Klein's work falls into that American tradition of building giant sculptures to lure motorists off the highway. Think of the cherubic statues and overalls at big boy restaurants, or the muffler men and Paul Bunyans that once guarded auto shops and roadside attractions of all sorts. Mark's carried on that tradition through contracts for clients around the country and his attractions in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Mark landed there in 1982. He set up Enchanted Studios as a workshop for making his fiberglass sculptures for one attraction after another. The first and second Dinosaur Kingdoms, the Haunted Monster Museum, Foamhenge. But it's not been without costs. I went through a depression uh, that I had to overcome. Went through a divorce. Uh, um, uh, a first wife that she left me because she said the, the romance of poverty had worn off and you know, I was struggling, and I kept saying, you know, hey, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this happen. And uh, became very, very close to bankruptcy. Um, had two major fires. Um, so there were a lot of things that I had to, to rise above, but I, I kept on and on and on and on. Mark says that even when he had nowhere else to go, he could turn to his art. It let him escape to a different place for a while. Today he's making a go of it. Dinosaur Kingdom 2 is going strong, even during the pandemic. On the day I visited, a surge of a traffic arrived in the late afternoon. Mostly 20-somethings, a couple of families, all excited to explore this weird attraction in Natural Bridge. But Mark's been doing this for 40 years. He's almost 60 now, and he's starting to think about the park's future. And that's where the Virginia Folklife Program comes in. 
My name is Pat Jarrett. I am a, uh, a digital media coordinator for the Virginia Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities. Pat discovered Dinosaur Kingdom through his previous job at a newspaper in Stanton, Virginia, just north of Natural Bridge. I, I love Dinosaur Kingdom, too. It's brilliant. It's full of whimsy and optical illusions and just, it's like being inside Mark Klein's brain, which is thrilling and uh, a little bit confusing. <laughs> he got to know Mark well enough to have conversations about the future of the park. He said to me one time something that really stuck with me. He said, I'm worried that if when I die, people are going to come into this yard and they're going to throw away all these molds because they don't know what this is or how to work it. And it's, it's just going to be lost. And that is kind of the reason we have the apprenticeship program is so that this knowledge can be passed down and continued. The apprenticeship program pairs masters in a folk craft with a student so that traditions can be passed on to future generations. The program doesn't usually play a matchmaker, but in Mark's case, Pat had someone in mind. I happened to know Brentley from um, the music community, and I knew that he was working on small-scale, short-run action figures. And it just clicked in my head he, he, that these guys could probably work together. Brentley Hilliard plays in a metal band. He also makes his own short-run action figures. Mark taught Brentley how to go from small-scale to large-scale sculpture and molding. He also passed along a couple of his clients to Brentley, like a children's museum in Connecticut that wanted fairy figures. Brentley has taken the business and lessons that Mark gave him and combined them with his woodworking and action figures to make a living from his art. Here's Brentley. I definitely learned a ton about mold making and materials that I hadn't worked with before. Like I had never worked with epoxy sculpt, which is a modeling compound that cures to almost like, like cement. And I had never messed with that. And I sculpted the head for a uh, flying monkey for a Wizard of Oz putt-putt course that he was working for. Mark still lives and breathes sculpture and molding, especially for Dinosaur Kingdom 2, where he's always planning something new. Whether that's an interactive water fight with Bigfoot, a Triceratops bullfight, or a whole new dungeon full of sculpted fiberglass creations. What's true and what's not here at Dinosaur Kingdom? To me, it's all true. This is a, hey, we're here, aren't we? We're walking through it. People say, are dinosaurs real? I say, they are to me, kid. <laughs> For Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Speaking of summer trips, where have you traveled this season? Have you seen anything especially remarkable? If there's something you'd like to share, send us an email at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Or send us a postcard. We're at 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. Our new producer, Bill Lynch, needs some to hang in his office. It still looks pretty empty in there. Recently, NPR published a list of 50 books for 50 states. West Virginia's was an anthology of stories called Eyes Glowing at the Edge of the Woods, Fiction and Poetry from West Virginia. It collects works from 63 writers and poets about the unique sense of place they find in the Mountain State. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas spoke with the book's editors, Doug Van Gundy and Laura Long, about how they brought its stories together. Which one of you came up with this idea, or was this was this one of those projects that started over a couple of beers during a, a conference somewhere? Abby Friedland, who was then acquisitions editor at WVU Press, uh, approached me. She was uh, visiting the West Virginia Wesleyan uh, Low Residency MFA program, and she said, "What do you think of this anthology, uh, Backcountry?" And uh, which was edited by Irene McKinney about 20 years ago. And I said, oh, it's essential. And she said, what do you think about updating? I said, oh, that would be great. You guys should do that. She said, what do you think about you doing it? And I said, oh, uh, okay, sure. And so we thought that Laura would be a great, uh, a, a great collaborator on this. Um, and as Laura writes, 
poetry and fiction, I'm primarily a poet, we thought, oh, it'd be great to have a couple of perspectives on it. And Laura and I are, are old friends and have worked together for off and on for a long time. And we thought we could probably get along well enough to pull together an anthology. And it ended up being just a, a joy. But the the sort of the bones of the thing came together at uh, an Appalachian Studies conference in Huntington, where we we all ducked out to have dinner together. And we sort of hammered out what we wanted for the book. And Laura brought her ideas and I brought my ideas and Abby brought her ideas. And by the end of dinner, we sort of had a mandate and a direction. What was that process like? How did you solicit the writers? How did you edit down the the content? That sort of thing. I guess we came up with a list. Did we come up with a list, Doug? I don't remember that part. We, you, we each came up with uh, suggestions and then we each brought lists. And when we went around and asked uh, some of the people who were on our lists, if they would like to be included or they'd like to be part of this, we always asked them, and who do you think should be in this book? And so that way we were able to find writers I, that I didn't know of that I, I've since you know become a fan of. And we also divided the work up so that um, I did the fiction and Doug did the poetry. You say it in your introduction to the book, but and you've both alluded to it, is you were looking for stories with a connection to West Virginia or that sense of place of West Virginia. I remember a conversation that you and I had, that Laura and I had, um, where we said we wanted the book to represent the state of the state of fiction and poetry in West Virginia. And we wanted to be sure that it was not monolithic. We wanted to be sure that uh, one of the things that that it represented as many uh, various voices that are are present in our our literature uh, as possible. And that the process of pulling the anthology together would be uh, an act of discovery for the both of us. And I, I think it was. Um, but one of the things that I love so much about my West Virginia is that it's there's room for everyone. And there I think that there is at the at, at its core a kind of inclusivity that if you're willing to put something into the community, if you're willing to belong, then you're welcome. And I I think that this book reflects that. Laura, you want to add anything? Speaking of poets that I didn't really know before, Norman Jordan, um, who was associated with the Black arts movement of the 60s and 70s, was a writer that I didn't know, even though he wrote five books of poetry. Um, and his um, his poem in here is about the Hawk's Nest Tunnel. And um, so the writers that, are not at all stereotypical, are deeply embedded and entwined with a sense of place. Um, so the place does connect people who um, and other um, scenarios might not seem connected. So, um, and uh, Doug mentioned um, Rajia Hasib, who's an amazing writer in Charleston, um, whose work connects with others in these surprising ways. That's another person that I didn't know before in a sense I've gotten to know because of the book. And I think with people like um, Rajya Hasib, who was so happy to be part of the book, they you realize how connected people feel. Even when she um, came to West Virginia from Egypt, and um, we realized that um, how many people... Um, are happy to make a home in West Virginia, um, as well as people who are born and raised here, like Scott McClanahan. Um, they people feel connections because they're born here, but they also feel connections because they make a life here with their with their family. That was Laura Long and Doug Van Gundy speaking with Eric Douglas. Their book is Eyes Glowing at the Edge of the Woods, Fiction and Poetry from West Virginia. It's available through WVU Press.
So what attracts visitors and new people to small towns? My town, Floyd, Virginia, does pretty well. But for artists and musicians, it's often a struggle to make ends meet. And during the pandemic, things have been even tougher. Roxy Todd reports for Radio IQ about how things have been playing out. On a recent Friday night at the Floyd Country Store, Corbin Hazlett is playing banjo with an old-time band called Nobody's Business. They're practicing upstairs before they go on stage. For his full-time job, Hazlett works across the street at a local record store. He makes about 15% of his income with music. Thankfully, I'm in a position where I don't have to rely on music for income now. I've, I've been there. 2020 was going to be the year when he tried to make it full-time as a musician. But like so many others, Hazlett felt like that dream was out of reach once COVID hit. You know, I know of musicians around here who had to sell their primary instruments or kind of exclusively rely on online lessons or stuff like that or take up full-time jobs. Seven out of ten workers who live in Floyd County travel outside the area for jobs, according to Ladina Martin, the economic development director for Floyd County. The people who work in the community, not the 70 percent that drive out, but the people who actually work in the community have among the lowest wages in Virginia. That's partly because even though Floyd has become a vibrant tourist destination, much of this work is seasonal, with the bulk of visitors coming on weekends and in summer. Floyd thrives on small businesses, but that means that many of those folks are very close to the edge themselves, right? They don't have a big cushion where they can just pay unlimited wages to someone. Martin says lack of affordable housing here has long been a challenge. They don't have hard numbers yet for the last couple years. But anecdotally, she's seen real estate and rentals in Floyd become even more scarce during the pandemic. And it's a real challenge to try to figure out how to keep vitality in Floyd by being welcoming to new people, while at the same time trying not to crowd out the people that are here and that are doing the day-to-day work of the community. Everybody get a bunch of flowers. At the Floyd Center for the Arts, Saban Booth is teaching a class to elementary school students. She grows flowers on her farm that she uses to make dyes for yarn and fabric, brightly colored dahlias, and wildflowers like yellow yarrow and pink sweet pea. You want that one? On this day, she's guiding the children to pick flowers from the Art Center's garden. Until last fall, Booth worked a day job for a lighting company. It took her years, but she finally made the shift to make her art her main source of income. I go to fiber festivals or art festivals and sell a lot of my work, and then at yarn shops as well. Back at the county sales record store, a new employee is working his first day as a sales clerk. Nathan Sykes came here from East Tennessee because he wanted to be part of the local music scene. You know, as a musician, I feel very welcome in the community already, you know. uh, I haven't even moved up here yet, and I already have a gig for Saturday. But he hasn't found full-time housing yet, though people are putting him up on their couches. I've been other places where the word community gets used a lot. And coming to Floyd, you know, they pretty much told me, it's like, if you come up here, we'll make sure you're sleeping inside and eating every day. Housing, low salaries, and the challenges of seasonal work. Floyd's barriers are the same for just about any town trying to grow a creative economy. But for people like Sykes, who are drawn here for the creative community, most say it's worth it, if they can afford to stay. In Floyd, I'm Roxy Todd. In 2023, West Virginia will be home to the last two remaining Greyhound racetracks in the U.S. In the final part of West Virginia Public Broadcasting's special report, Chris Schultz learned about the dogs themselves. Senator Ryan Weld was doing his due diligence when he went to inspect the kennels at the Wheeling Island Adoption Center. He wanted to make sure that the industry in his district was safe and humane. What he didn't want was what he got, another dog. The only downside to visiting the the kennel that day is that uh, my wife and I went from two to three dogs. We adopted a dog that we met that day. Weld calls it a downside, but like many people, he was taken by what the American Kennel Club calls the Greyhound's nobility and gentleness. And although Greyhounds can reach speeds of more than 40 miles per hour, it's actually not a very active breed. They're they're called 45-mile-an-hour couch potatoes. They like to run out in the morning, she'll run a little bit at night, but other than that, they just like to lounge. That relaxed temperament is part of the racing Greyhound's appeal. 
As one of his dogs nuzzles the reporter's microphone, Greyhound breeder Steve Saris says that most, if not all, of his dogs get adopted. Of the 75 dogs on Saris's farm in Wellsburg, even the best dogs only race until they're around five or six years old, and as much as Saris and his employees love their dogs, at the end of the day, it's still a business. Space needs to be made for new dogs. And the best thing is, you know, we breed them. We know that someone wants them. That's the best thing about it. Like I said, the, the industry's got like a, anywhere from a 95 to a 97% adoption rate. You look at any other canine breed, nowhere's near that. Sydney Bader is the adoption coordinator for the Wheeling Island Greyhound Adoption Center. Her organization works directly with trainers, the track, and groups all around the U.S. and Canada to help disperse all of the dogs that have retired to loving homes. The demand is ridiculous. We're not Walmart. We can't create dogs just because the demand is so high. As the industry declines, the supply of dogs is dwindling with it. Come next year, West Virginia will be home to the last two dog tracks in the country. If you want one or two more greyhounds before this is all over, put in your apps now. Start looking now because... This conversation is not going to be the same in three, five, six years. I don't know what it's going to look like. Bader says that the Wheeling Island Adoption Center and its partner programs in other states have become more discerning. So a lot of time in the past several years has been spent devoted to learning about our dogs and also learning about our adopters and learning about our groups that we work with. The demand for these dogs as pets is definitely not going anywhere. Like Senator Weld, Bader says that the Greyhound's appeal is in their temperament. Advocates, adopters, trainers, and breeders all agree on one thing. Greyhounds that have gone through the racing program are just different. The dog's socialization, both with humans and other dogs, certainly plays a part. Generally, a non-racing dog being put up for adoption is separated from its littermates 9 to 12 weeks after being born. But racing breeders like Saris often keep littermates together for more than a year before sending them to training. A greyhound that hasn't raced versus a greyhound who went through the program, absolutely they're different. They're honestly the easiest dog to own. I always tell people it's like owning a 75-pound cat. As a greyhound owner herself, Bader admits there can be a bit of a learning curve as the dogs acclimate to domestic life. And I would always have people come up and be like, well, greyhounds are stupid. I'm like, they're not. They just have never had to problem solve. It's not that they can't do it. They just, that's not how they're born, bred, and raised to operate. That's where people like Gayan Weaver, executive director of the Greyhound Inmate Experience, come in. I think people who are interested in adopting a Greyhound, the majority of them want a pet. The tracks and the kennels are not a pet environment. Weaver receives about 15 of the 20 retired racing greyhounds in her program from West Virginia every 10 weeks. She places the dogs at the Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater, Michigan, one dog with two inmates. Greyhounds are well socialized, but in a very specific way, and they need some help acclimating to home life. Once they come off the track, it's our purpose to help them transition into pet life which is getting hugs and all those other things and treats and toys. Weaver said the program ended up at the prison because they needed a place where they could foster and train a lot of greyhounds all at once. But what started out as a dog-focused program has now become a person-focused program. The inmates help the dogs prepare for their new homes, and in turn, the dogs help the inmates prepare for success after they've served their sentence. There were a lot of pessimists out there that said, you know, you're never going to get 40 guys to make a commitment and uh, be responsible, have empathy, communicate with one another, trust one another. It's just never going to happen. And uh, I think that over the years, we've probably proved all the skeptics wrong. For that reason, Weaver and her team are less concerned than others about the decline of the racing greyhound in America. But as a greyhound lover of more than 20 years, she says she has seen a lot of improvements in the industry. However, at this juncture, with West Virginia set to become the last place where greyhounds are raced in the United States, perhaps those improvements were too little, too late. But it seems certain that if greyhound racing ends here, the breed, as is known and loved by so many, will go with it. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Wheeling.
in the morning, it's the start of a brand new day. Is to show up to work and hear the boss man say. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Chris Knight, Hot Rise, Johnny Stats, The Freight Hoppers, Martika and William and Hazel Dickens. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.